1: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray.
2: Oh, and once again welcome wherever you are in our great country or even around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel and I'm just always excited to bring you special people and today... I outdid myself because my former running mate uh, Larry Sharp from New York uh, is with us. He is a also a former Libertarian candidate for governor in New York. We'll talk about that a bit and that experience. But uh, I can tell you, and and uh, I, I tried to let him know before I began, so not to get too too blown up about this, but he is as sensational a human being as I know. Uh, he is dedicated. He is selfless. He's intelligent. He's articulate. And of course, now I'm setting you up, Larry, because you're going to have to live up to all of this. But, but welcome, Larry Sharp. And please give us a little bit of background about you that, and include the Larry Sharp story, which I saw on your website, uh, thesharpway.com. Uh, and just, just tell us a little bit about your background, because you've overcome a great deal to be where you are today.
3: Well, now I'm scared, Judge. You made me sound so good. I, I need to knock out out of the park now. Okay. Uh, so, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a kid from the Bronx, in, re, in reality. I was uh, born, actually, in Manhattan, adopted when I was a baby, brought to the Bronx, uh, raised by my uh, immigrant mother and um, father, who was a, a veteran and was a uh, corrections officer at Rikers Island. He passed away. Um, so it was me and my mom only after, after he died. Um, we had uh, no other family because she was an immigrant. After that, uh, she couldn't handle me leaving. I left the, for the Marine Corps at 17, wanting to make myself better in some way, shape or form, and, and partially trying to escape, uh, to go off and, and try to be great in my own way. And the military seemed to be the right answer. And I was actually going to join the Army because my, my father was in the Army. But uh, when I went to the – it's a good story – when I went to the recruiting station, there were four different, you know, all four branches there, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and, excuse me, and Marines. And I went past the Air Force and past the Navy and went right to the Army and said, I want to join. And the guy's like, great, you're going to be a general in three weeks. We're going to send you all across the world, and it's going to be amazing. You're going to get free college. You're going to get a doctorate in like a year. He promised me the entire world. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I was still in high school at the time. So I literally had the book covers that said, go Army on it, and bumper stickers, and I walk outside, and the, and the Marine Corps recruiter sitting there, standing there, arms folded. He says, hey, son. I said, yeah. He said, uh, you talk to the Army guy? I said, yeah. He said, you got a minute? I said, sure. So he brought me in, sat me down. He said, an Army guy. He promised you everything, right? And I said, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm going to be a general in like a month, and I'm going to be running every day and crossing, running around the country and around the world. It's going to be amazing. He said, you know what we call that in the Marine Corps? I said, what? He said, we call that the solar plan, everything under the sun. He goes, you know what I'm going to promise you? I said, what? He said, four hard years. Are you ready? I said, yes. I threw the Army stuff in the garbage can, and I signed up right there. That's literally how I became Marine. I was not even intending to do it. The guy read me. He knew exactly what I was looking for. And as I look back, you know, now that's... You know, 30 years, as I look back, I realized that I was searching for positive male role models. And I didn't understand how bad I wanted them. And when he gave me one right in my face, I jumped at it. And I see how so many of our youth struggle for the same thing. And that's and I was lucky. I, I had the Marines for that. So I spent about seven years in the Marine Corps. And while I was gone, my mother couldn't handle the fact of losing both me and my father. And she fell into a depression, first with legal drugs and eventually illegal drugs. And she became a victim of the drug war. And uh, she was a convicted felon. So when I got out of, out of the Marine Corps, I, I pulled her out of, uh, out of jail, out of prison. And doing that, I saw how hard it is for someone who is a felon to get a job. And I, I hated it. I hated the fact that my mother you know, lied on every single uh, form, never said she was a felon, blatantly lied, and hoped they wouldn't check. And whenever she got a job, she was basically a hostage because she was afraid of doing anything wrong. Because if she lost her job, she couldn't get another one. And if her boss decided to, you know, do any kind of background check, she'd be finished. So I couldn't stand it. So after several years of this, I decided, you know what? I don't want my mom to be a hostage anymore. I'm not doing it. So I decided to start my own business. So we started a business, me, and my mom, and, and my stepdad. She had remarried uh, after she had got out. And so I decided, you know what? That's it. I'm, I'm going to start a business. And I started a trucking business. And we started the business, three of us. And my mother owned 100% of the business. I gave her all of it because I said to myself, if... My mom's the boss. Nobody can fire her. So we ran the business, but she was 100% owner, and that's how my mom stopped being a hostage. Entrepreneurship is what got us out of that, that hole got her out of her bad situation. She ran that business for several years, and then she retired um, in South Carolina, and eventually she passed away. Um, after that, that's when I learned how to be an entrepreneur, right? Through that failure and that, and that success, I then sold another business after that. That one failed. I stole that one off. I then started another business, and that one i 've had now for about fifteen years, sixteen years now and that 's the consulting training business that I have uh, That one collapsed in the two thousand and nine um, in the two thousand and nine uh, uh, bubble that collapsed there, and I had to reboot that business because it completely collapsed. I had to get rid of my office, fire my employees, reboot again and so then I decided, you know what? Maybe I'm a libertarian. I heard Gary Johnson speak. I was very disappointed in all politics. It didn't seem to be helping me at all. The system was completely against me and my family. And I heard Gary Johnson speak, and Gary Johnson was running with you, Judge, and you and the governor were my first libertarian vote, and since then, I have been on board. I ran for governor in 2018, got us ballot access for the first time ever in New York State, got over 100,000 votes. Multiplied our vote total by six, in the last person who ran, and uh, still rocking and rolling, trying to make the world a better place, hoping that we have some impact this year.
2: Well, in my campaign or our campaign uh, week, I'd, I'd like to say we carried New York, but it was really Larry Sharp that carried New York uh, for for our campaign. That you were you were very well known. Uh, you you did run for governor. Uh, by the way, I you, you said a lot there. Uh, you talk about Army, and I heard this story a while ago. Uh, almost ready to be a Marine yet? A. My and I thought that was kind of fun, but uh, yeah, yeah. you know, we would find these recruiters that would just promise the moon. I hadn't heard the solar plan before, but uh, but yes, and that's 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 just not the way it's supposed to be. And and then you know, of course, back in 1992, I held a press conference as our as a sitting judge against our war on drugs. And I've heard so many of these stories, Larry, where people are branded as felons. They, they and they they go to prison. They go to jail. They don't get any assistance for their drug drug problems there. And so they want to come out. They want to be able to do well, but they can't get a job. And what do people that are still drug addicted do when they get depressed? They go back to, to using drugs. I went yeah. to Norco, Norco State Prison here in California a while ago and found that uh, their recidivism rate was something like 85% in the first yep. year. And why let them out almost? Because they didn't get any drug treatment when they were there. They'd be felons and they uh, would be a recidivist, if only because they'd fail a drug test. Just limitless harm that we have perfected yes. upon people. But, but Larry, bless you for, for what you did for your mom uh, and, uh, and the rest, an entrepreneurial spirit. So you did run for office as a libertarian in, uh, for the governor of New York. That was back in 2018. Tell us about that campaign. What, what did you do? Where did you spend your time, your resources, and uh, what was your strategy?
3: Well, the the funny thing that we find here is when you when when most people decide to run for office, they think, Well, I've got a great message or I've got, you know, a great team or whatever and people will hear me and I'll do great. And that's not actually how it works. Um you've gotta be able to get things like press, you've got to be able to get things like polling, you've got to be able to get people to hear your message, right? It's it's basic marketing in, in a kind of a sad way in that If people can't hear your message, it doesn't matter how good it is if no one hears it. So we have to be able to get our message out. And I thought that, well, if I run a real campaign and raise money and become a nominee, everyone will pay attention and I'll have a chance. Yeah, that's not how it works. Um, How it works is you've got to be able to be popular and exciting and interesting, and that's what matters more than anything else. And the joke I always bring up is I say, imagine if Kim Kardashian decided to run for president, right? It uh, doesn't matter what party she'd be in, she'd get tons of people to watch her because she's popular and people want to see her. And if she wants to debate, she's going to be able to debate. Everybody wants to watch Kim Kardashian or, or Kanye West debate. I mean, that'd be amazing to watch them debate. So I think that was an issue that I didn't understand how powerful that was. But I began to learn it. I thought that me being in New York City, I'd be able to get some press in New York City. People would think I'm a city boy, okay, they'll give me some some, some, some play. It didn't work at all. I was basically ignored. The media did the worst thing it could possibly do, not attack me, but ignore me. And when that happened, we struggled. So what did I do? I decided to spend more time upstate New York in areas that don't have a lot going on, in smaller counties uh, with uh, smaller towns. And what wound up happening is whenever I had a local libertarian uh, party there, some kind of affiliate there, and I would go there, all of a sudden press would show up. And press would show up in the smaller towns because it's a bigger deal. What I found is that because the towns are small, most statewide politicians will never show up there because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for their for their budget right? to show up to a place like that when they could go to a major city and get press. So why go to a small town? So I would go there, and the people would say, oh, my God, I've never seen a gubernatorial candidate face-to-face ever, ever. And they've been living there for, you know, four generations, and they can't ever remember it. So I would show up, and they would love it, and they would give me press, and they would talk to me. And because of how media has been devastated, particularly print media in the past, 10 to 20 years, many times people who write for a local newspaper write for multiple newspapers. They write for two, three, four, five, all in the local area, sometimes the same pen name, sometimes different. But that's the way the papers can save money, and people can still make money because they get a little bit of money from each paper. So it's the way they've adapted to the new norm within the uh, local uh, newspaper business. But more important than that, People would tease me and go, "Larry, you're going to some newspaper that has, you know, maybe a thousand people who actually read the damn thing. Wow, that's nothing. You know, there's millions of these other ones." And I said, "Yeah, you're, you're right. Maybe a couple hundred or a couple thousand read this, but but if you read your local newspaper, you vote." That I can guarantee you, the person who picks up their local newspaper and reads the local newspaper, that person votes because they care about their community and they vote. So while I was getting a smaller audience, I was getting the right audience, the audience that needed to hear my message. The audience that actually cared and would pay attention to my message versus a massive you know, TV or something blitz where at least two-thirds of the audience doesn't actually care. So I got a good audience. But more important than that, those places also have an online presence, and it may be tiny or small. But when they come up with an online presence, I can take that online presence and put it towards my online presence, and people around the country on the state can see it and go, oh, Larry Sharp was in a local newspaper. They have no idea whether that newspaper is big or small or whatever it is. All they know is, oh, he's getting pressed. It validated me as a candidate, and it got people to want to give me money. It got people to want to support me. It got people to share it on, on social media, and that began to grow. And as the social media pieces grew, and as multiple smaller uh, towns began to pop up uh, in their newspapers, now the local cities began to say, oh, something's going on here. And they began to pick it up, and they would do polling and things like that. And all of a sudden, I began to be much more popular uh, in most of the smaller uh, counties where literally there was no competition. So they actually began to hear my message. And when they heard my message, they would share it. And some of my things actually stayed, right? One of my most popular ones was I wanted to regulate cannabis like onions. And I literally made that up when I was in Western New York one time because, for those of you who don't know who are listening, in Western New York, we grow onions. That's the thing that we grow in Western New York. So when I was in Western New York, I brought up. Onions, because we grow that in Western New York. So I said, "Hey, let's regulate it like onions." And people were like, "Oh, that sounds great!" And that "regulate like onions" stuck. It was a policy idea that it was an interesting slogan, and it stuck. And to this day, I mean, it's been three years now. People still say, "Hey, Larry, shop regulate like onions." So I think that was a big part of me gaining uh, the the uh, the traction that I gained. But I also did something else. I realized that in today's world, particularly as a third party, you don't have to have a local team. About half of my team was not in my state. You can do things virtual. And of course, now with COVID, we're already doing it virtually. So we were already ready for it. So I could actually you know, have a team that was in Ohio or Indiana or in California, Washington State. It was all over the place and we can coordinate that way. And we were able to do so um, and, and make things happen. I had donors from all over the, the country, about half of the money, I raised about half a million dollars. About half it came in, from New York State, about half it came from outside of New York State. So being a third party, you gotta remember, you know, if you're a Democrat or Republican, the odds of you having someone running in your local area are pretty high, right? Because they're the two major parties. But if you're a third party candidate, the odds of someone running in your area are slim. So if no one's running in your area, why not give it to someone running, say, I don't know, governor of New York? Not a bad idea. So I was able to raise money from around the country also, and third parties can do that. And the other piece I think really helped was social media. I focused heavily on social media because it's what I had. I've always said that you have four arenas you have to fight on if you want to win an election. You've got to win on social media. That, that is not enough but that's one of the four you need to win on. That one I actually won. I actually beat all my opponents on social media, and that was great. But then the second one is traditional media. That I got killed on. The traditional media is almost always going to go toward the incumbent and or the two major parties, and they killed me on on that. The third one, is events, being able to get people together. I mean, you look at Bernie and Trump, they were amazing at that, gathering tens of thousands of people in one place events. I did okay in events, but I just didn't do well enough events. I needed to have thousands of people at my events. I never got past a couple hundred. I just couldn't make that leap to the next one. And I think most of that was because I couldn't get traditional media and that means I also couldn't get traditional ads to draw the people in. So they, they overlap, obviously. I couldn't make that. And the last one is debates and polls. I think they go together because usually to get in debates, you have to be in polls. Polls cost $40,000, 50000 to be in the polls. I couldn't raise enough money to buy polls. And I would ask the pollsters, literally, why am I not in your poll? And they would say, well, you don't buy the poll. Buy the poll, you're in the poll. And I was like, wow, how much does the poll cost? $40,000. Okay, don't have it. So I literally couldn't buy the poll to be in the poll. And polling is what makes people think that you're real. Polling helps you get in debates. And When we got into debates, the the, the press didn't want me in debate. They didn't think I was exciting or interesting enough. So they just didn't do it. So there were actually several debates. I was in three debates. Uh, None of them televised. I won all three of them, and almost no one saw them. So the, the governor decided, I don't want to show up to debates, and he didn't. So what happened? Because they wanted the ad revenue... They did a special debate just with the governor and the Republican. And no one else was in it. That was televised. That one I wasn't in. So I think I lost three of the four, which is a, a, a major reason why I, uh, I lost the election. But I do think social media matters. We spent a lot of time on that. To add to the social media, I did things like this, right? The podcast, uh, the internet radio show, um, the video podcast, the, the, the YouTube show. I did tons of those, and one of my biggest, most popular ones was my Joe Rogan appearance. I think I got seven or 800,000 views on that, and huge. Still to this day, again, three years later, I had people who will you know, point the finger and say, hey, a lot of shops so you on uh, Joe Rogan. That'll happen in the street sometimes. It was that popular. Um, The other ones I did that were very good, uh, Dave Rubin, Dave Smith, um, you also raise money from those because people see it and go, oh, this guy's real. He makes sense. And before you know it, you know, someone's earning money or time or, more importantly, sharing things on social media. This is what most people don't get when when you run for office. It's a popularity contest. It's not a job interview, and people think it's a job interview. It isn't. Um, It is absolutely a popularity contest and more of a sales process. And you've got to know your audience, have the right benefits, sell your wares, and make this a popularity contest. If you do that, you get a better chance of victory. And I did that better than anyone Wells in New York had done, which is why I got so many votes. But I didn't do it good enough, right? If I would have done it good enough, I would have won a thing. But at least I was able to get um, ballot access, And with that ballot access, I was able to get more people on the ballot the year after. And as I went back across the state again, right, I ran in 2018, 2017 and 2018. I ran for a year and a half. And when I went back across that again in 2019, I literally went back across all of my 52 counties in my state, supporting local candidates, um, getting media to show up again, getting people to show up again, getting volunteers to show up again, raising money for local candidates. And we got 130 victories in New York State to where the year before we had exactly zero.
2: Yeah, so, we're going to a huge change. Covered a, you've covered a lot of territory there. We're going to talk about your your down, down ballot candidates in a minute. But, ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard this fellow that has an online business training company give a free lecture. Uh, it, your company is called Neo Sage group incorporated, N-E-O hyphen S-A-G-E group incorporated. We just heard why you have been successful in that. But I can go back, Larry. I was a sitting judge and decided I'm going to change the world. So I took mm-hmm. an unpaid leave of absence back in 1998. Then I was a Republican and ran for Congress with the truly naive view that if a good candidate, quote unquote, opens his doors, the world will flock to your doorstep. Uh, I, as a <laughs> yeah. judge, I couldn't, I couldn't recruit people and ask for funding while I was still a judge. So that put me put me behind the eight ball there, but but it just isn't true. You've got to get organization, you've got to get media, yes. you've got to get supporters, you've got to get money. By the way, Sharp, you certainly got some of my money when you were running for governor of New York, uh, and I'm here in California, and you still are with regard to your various matters, <laughs> but, but, but thank you. Thank you. But yeah, name name helps. I mean, <laughs> newsflash, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, did you ever hear of him before? Okay, well, he's the first time out of the box, wins the governorship of California, because he had name recognition. Is that fair? No, no, it's not. But who says life is fair? Jesse Ventura, mm-hmm. did you ever hear of a fellow by you know that name, became the mm-hmm. governor of Minnesota? Uh, because, yeah, name recognition certainly helps. So I guess Kim Kardashian wouldn't get my vote, but she'd get a lot of people's just because uh, uh, she, she's who she is. But to go back through that then.
3: Uh, How about Donald Trump, Judge? Yeah, sure. He had, a, he had a TV show for like 10 years, yeah?
2: Sure, sure. It, it, it certainly helps. And uh, yeah. that just so I wrote down that running for office is a popularity contest as opposed to a job interview. And I'd never really thought of it that way. But uh, I, I I think that that's an accurate statement that I, I have the opinion and see if you go along with this, Larry, that everybody that votes, everybody that goes into the ballot booth. Well, now we don't have ballot booths so much. and They they submit their their uh Vote by mail, but everyone has one question in mind, and that's what's in it for me, and and that's not necessarily a popularity contest question, but it could be to, as I say, fill up my rice bowl, to get, get me a job, help me educate my children, help me with health care. It could be world peace for all that concern, but all people have that in mind. Uh, do you agree with that? Because the popularity contest versus job interview uh, seems to be opposite. Yeah,
3: um, I I think. That's, that used to be true, and is true on a local level more, but the more the person goes away, the more the person you don't, you don't know, the more the person is, is, is distant from you, the more it becomes tribal, the more it becomes emotional. Lots of people vote against their best interest. It's a common problem. You know, there's a group of people that don't vote. I think those people think exactly the way you're saying right, give or take 40 to 60% of our population, depending on where you are, what year, don't vote. I think those people are saying, what's in it for me? And they're saying, nothing, so why bother? But I think a lot of people are going just to show that they're part of a tribe. It's an emotional piece, it's an identity piece, it's a cultural piece. The amount of people that that I was running in 2018 that cared about how I felt about Donald Trump, It was shocking to me. And the story I'll tell you is, there was a farmer, I've told the story a couple of times, who in upstate New York, I believe we were in North Country in New York, and he came to me and he told me a story, a terrible story about his farm. He was saying, my farm has been in my family for six years, six generations, and we're in trouble, we're underwater, we're probably going to lose my farm, things aren't going well, oh my God, the world's ending, I was like, oh my God, it's terrible. You know what his first question for me after he told me his story was? What do you think about Trump? And I thought to myself, that actually means nothing, meaning Trump was going to be president no matter what I did. It was 2018. He wasn't even on the ballot. So no matter whether I love Trump or hate Trump or he loved Trump or hated Trump, doesn't matter. Trump was going to be president no matter what. And Trump isn't going to help his farm. Totally irrelevant meant nothing. But in his mind, that's where he was going to draw a line on whether he could trust me or not. That emotional tribalism is very strong in our country now, and it began, I think, during the Nixon years where it really began, and I think it's just been exploding since then. It was obvious at the end of the Obama administration, and Trump just doubled, tripled down. And I think this is a big piece that most people aren't paying attention to. So when it is a two-person race... Rhetoric is all that matters. Are you with us, or are you against us? And it works very well, and the people who hate that, many of them have stopped voting. They just say, well, I don't care, it's a, who cares, it doesn't matter, and they, and they walk away. So I think that's really uh, a part that we have to accept. And if you're gonna be a third party, you've gotta have what you talked about. Someone who's, who's gonna be third party has to have what's in it for me. That's the only way to break the cultural aspect. It's the only way to get someone to kind of leave their team and vote for you, and it's the only way to get people who just aren't voting anymore to come to us. So for us, I think you're 100% correct. We ha- it has to be what's in it for me, or they won't break the idea of why bother, doesn't matter, or my team or the other team. Well, back
2: a long time ago now, Tip O'Neill, in the, during the Reagan administration, was the Speaker of the House, and he was quoted accurately saying, politics is personal, and uh, yeah. you know, and, and that's right. And I go back huh, well before your time, Larry, to watching the Nixon-Kennedy debates in 1960, and we didn't know John Kennedy particularly. My father was watching him and my, my mother and sister, and uh, Nixon said something really kind of outrageous, and the the camera panned on Kennedy, he was just just grinning, just this big grin like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And my father said audibly, I really like this guy. And I'm sure that he mm-hmm. ended up voting for Kennedy. But it is personal, but uh, it, it is that relationship, popularity contest versus job interview. So, so good for you. Well, we're going to come back and just after this break and talk about your upstate candidates, also talk about our our issues when we were running together for president, vice Mm -hmm. president, libertarians recently to just go through, I really want you to discuss, and I'd love to take credit for it, and I did, but this idea of two Ellis Islands regarding immigration, that's an intriguing approach that's all Larry Sharp. We're gonna talk about that after this break. Stay tuned.
0: The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice
0: America.
1: listening to All Rise, the libertarian way with retired judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit judgejimgray.com. That's judgejimgray.com. Now, back to All Rise.
2: Well, welcome back to uh All Rise. By the way, the whole Concept, Well, not the concept, but the idea, the wording for All Rise came from my guest, Larry Sharp. You may not remember that, Larry, but I put out some feelers saying I wanted the libertarian way with Judge Jim Gray. But, But any thoughts about how we should title this? And, of course, Larry comes up keen that he is and all rise. So, so thank you for that. Uh, no royalties involved, but but I accept my appreciation. But before we come back to Larry Sharp as, as my guest, my esteemed guest, my partner, uh, my running mate, uh, my wife has asked that I bring in a little bit of at least intentional levity into this. And it's usually where I do this. So I can tell you, Larry, that this morning I started the day off rather badly because I stepped on my bathroom scale and the response came back as Please practice social distancing. Only one at a time. That was kind of kind of a discouraging way to begin the day, but one way or the other. Uh, so, Larry, well, your uh, your scale cares about you, Judge. It does. You could just. <laughs> it, it, it was a high scale deal. Uh, I love that it. was that was forced. But uh, at any rate, we we've been listening to you and your and your running and giving very practical advice to candidates uh, uh, anywhere and and to focus upon that and we were going to we had that plan when we were going to run for us, as the nominees for president and vice president as well which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later but but you did something really remarkable after you ran for governor then you went up and down the state of New York helping We call them down-ballot candidates, but, you know, running for city council or for treasurer or for these various things. Uh, Tell us how you were able to take New York from zero elected libertarians the year before to 103 in, uh, what was it, 2019. How did you organize that? How did you carry it off? Because, bless
3: you, you helped your state immensely, too. Well, the the issue is we have to try to have – we have to organize, right? And organizing what most people don't understand. And again, from my business consulting, I I know how to train and organize things. That's what I do. And when I've been an officer in a public company twice, and often I'm the reorg guy so when when people do things like as an example, say, "You know what we're going to start a new affiliate in this county," the first thing they do is go through the motions of let's let's select this person let's let's organize this and organize that and organize this." Well, to be forward, that's boring politics po- political campaigns and politics cannot be run like a traditional business, like a store or something like that. It's not operation. It doesn't work. You're not paying people. They don't have jobs. There's no contracts. That's not how it works. They're passion projects. And we have to understand that they're not businesses. They're passion projects. And sadly, most people think that they're all businesses. No. And here's the funny part. Any successful business that really explodes is also a passion project. And most people don't get that either. So, what is a passion project? It means you are excited about something or someone or some issue or something like that. Judge, when we ran together as, as a president, vice president, you were the center. You were our passion project. We, you brought us together. And when I was running… I brought people together. It was, let's get Larry Sharp elected, right? That was the the goal. Let's get Larry Sharp elected. I brought people together. But when I wasn't running anymore, I had to go to other places and start to build up local affiliates. What did I do? I didn't find me. I found a mission. What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to you know uh, lower the tax, uh, lower the taxes on, on on property? Are we trying to get rid of someone out of office? Are we trying to change a policy? Are we trying to get on the on the air? Are we trying to you know get three more candidates? And I bring up these random uh, missions because the actual mission doesn't matter as long as the people there care about that mission, and each place the different reason for wanting to show up. And once they have a mission. Then they start to coalesce around that mission. And naturally, as humans, we just start to organize. It's what we do. Because now if I just go, I need a guy who's going to be you know, candidate outreach and a guy or gal who's going to be marketing chief or whatever, that's boring. But if I say, we need to get Judge Jim Gray elected. Okay, now what? Who's going to be what? Who's going to be that? Okay, I'll be this. I'll be that. I'll be this. People will naturally do it. It's a passion project. And what I do is I cross the state. I was t- telling people this, showing them this, and we went from less than 16, 17 um, county affiliates to now we have over 30. We doubled our affiliates in a, in a year and a half because of that idea. Let's have a, a passion project. Let's have a mission. Let's have a reason to stop watching Netflix or a reason to leave my family and go work with a bunch of libertarians to get something done just because... Just because the, you know, the, the meeting is at 7 on Tuesday, doesn't mean anybody shows up. There's got to be a reason for it. Again, this is when you organize politics, one has to remember, it's not a business. It's a passion project. If you get that at its core, you can move people. Politics, as like I said, you know, it's, a, it's a popularity contest and not a job interview, but the actual politics is about mission and a passion project, not about business.
2: In politics, I believe reality is irrelevant. It's only the voters' perception of reality that counts. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's kind of what you're saying. People do respond emotionally. huh? Boy, that's, mm-hmm. that's breaking news, but, it, but it's true. <laughs> so you find that mission, you find that crusade in effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what gets people moving. So you did me the honor, of course, just recently in being my running mate uh, uh, when I was running for the nomination for president as libertarian and you were running for vice president. But okay, uh, Joe Jorgensen won and, and bless her and, and I will certainly support her and I know you will as well as a libertarian candidate for president, but what did you take away from our campaign together for those nominations Larry sharp
3: well um, as you know I actually didn't really want to run um, this year um, I didn't really want to, but when you called me, I mean you were the reason um, I love and respect you judge and when you when you made the call, um, I came as of course I would. So you were the reason. I think many people came to our campaign for that reason. They came because of you. And happy I did it. It was the right answer. No regrets. Happy I did it. So if, if I'm going to spend political capital, I'll spend it on you, happily to do it. So I think when it comes to that, that's my first piece. But my second piece is, and I, and I discussed it a little bit um, online the other day, and I, I think most people don't understand it, and that is the Libertarian Party, as much as I love it, it was born in the idea of being an activist party, so we have an activist mindset still in our party. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's, in my view, so strong that the average libertarian who is part of the party doesn't always get that politicians aren't activists, that they're not the same animal. They're both very much required for any movement, but they're not the same animal. An activist is about, I need to be seen, look at me, Um, it doesn't matter, here's the issue, I am righteous, look at me. That's an activist, and we need them. They are critical to get our issues out. A politician is supposed to be, here is the answer for you. Here is the answer for you. The politician doesn't have to be the person who's yelling and screaming about an issue. They can be, but not required. What's more important is, here's how we solve that issue. Here's the answer for you. An activist wins if they just shine a light on an issue. An activist wins if they bring an issue to the forefront in general. An activist wins if people are talking about that issue. And that's a victory and critical and important. But a politician wins when they have an actual solution. And it's a different issue, a different way of speaking. You, you can't get good politicians without act, good activists, and good activists can't be effective without good politicians. And our party lacks politicians. It has tons of activists. It needs more and better politicians. And one of the reasons why we don't, we don't draw better politicians in is because we have, uh, they're afraid of our activists. I'm not afraid of our activists. So that's why I stay. I've never been accused of being a
2: politician before, but based upon your definition, I guess that I was one. Uh,
3: yes, because you had solution. Because with the, the issue that we have is within the party and our culture, being an activist is a very awesome, amazing thing. Yelling and, and screaming about rhetoric is a very positive and great thing, and I get it. It, it motivates. It's red meat. For the libertarian party, right? Just, just as soon as you have a, a question or issue, it's about get government out, destroy it. And we go, yeah, and we clap. it. it's amazing. I love it. It's, it excites me, too. I'm guilty also, Judge. I like it also. I just recognize that once we leave our echo chamber, it doesn't work. <laughs> That's the issue. Once it leaves our echo chamber, it doesn't work. How do I know that? I ran for a year and a half. I figured it out the hard way. It doesn't work. You've got to actually have answers. And when you have answers, it begins to work. And the problem is many libertarians will say, Larry, you're wrong. Look what Democrats and Republicans do. All they do is rhetoric. That's true because it's a two-party race. In a two-party race, it's just us versus them, and rhetoric works. Absolutely, that's the environment you're fighting in. And when libertarians are running in two per- two-person 2 races, we often do well because it's just rhetoric, us versus them. We're getting the I-don't-like-that-guy vote by default. But when you run in a three-, four-, or five-person race, as I did, that doesn't work. When you're running for president, it's never going to be a two-party race. It's always going to be a three- or four-person race. We have to learn as a party that that's when the rhetoric has to go away. That's when the answers mm-hmm. and solutions have to pop up. You know, the, if you look now what people are looking for more than anything, what the American people are looking for is they're looking for safety. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We're afraid of China. We're afraid of COVID. We're afraid of the other. We're afraid. We're looking for safety. For us, just go, we have no answers. We just want to trash things it makes American people even scareder, and they don't want to hear it. They run away from it. But when we say, no, 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 let me show you how we can get an answer. All of a sudden they go, oh, what? Wait a minute, you have an actual answer? And there's a part of our country, I don't know, maybe 40% of our people, of, of, of voters, not of our country, of voters, maybe 30 or 40%, who it doesn't matter what we say, Judge, they are going to fall back to their left or right paradigm. It doesn't matter what. Literally, I could save their child you know, from, a, from a house fire. They would still not vote for me. They would go for the, for the left or the right. There's a chunk of those who we're never going to get. But there is sure. a chunk of voters who will hear it if we've got the right message. And more importantly, hear it multiple times. As I mentioned about the business side, the marketing side, you're totally right. When it comes to I, – when, I, when I'm doing my consulting, I make a big difference between sales and marketing on one side and operations on the other. When it comes to sales and marketing of any business, reality is irrelevant. You're totally correct. It's all about perception. What people are buying is a perceived outcome. But now, when it's operations, you've got to actually do what you say. That's when the rubber hits the road. But politics, when you're out there, you know, um, when, you, when you're out there campaigning, it's all perception. It's all, you know, a perceived outcome. And if you look at people like Donald Trump, amazing campaigner. Whether you like or hate Donald Trump, you got to admit the guy's a marketer. The guy can campaign like no other. Govern, I'm not impressed, right? His operations, not impressed at all. But his marketing, amazing. He's effective. That's why he's president. And we have to realize that two separate pieces, and that when we're out there campaigning, it's about perception, as you said, rightfully judge, And that means a perceived outcome. Just yelling and screaming as the activists, that's almost like the marketing. It gets you to notice us, but they don't pull the trigger. Right? That's the old, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Activists may bring a horse to water, but the actual politician, the actual person has the answer, that makes him drink, which means it makes him vote.
2: Yeah. So we had a number of solutions, as we posed, and mm-hmm. uh, one of them was with regard to immigration. Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea that we would close our borders is simply not American. It's just not who Mm -hmm. we are. We're a nation of immigrants. We need some controls, and like you said too, the country is not ready for open borders, and as long as we're a welfare state, neither am I. But Mm -hmm. we want people who, to pursue the American dream. If they want to come here and roll up their sleeves and work hard and have a better life for themselves and their children, bless them. And Mm -hmm. and we want those people to come in here. So you had an idea, Two Ellis Islands, that I immediately shamelessly incorporated as my own, but it really came from you. Uh, Not only the title, but but the whole concept. Explain to us, Larry Sharp, what the concept of Two Ellis Islands is, which would make our immigration system so much more fair, so much expedient, so much more human?
3: Well, it's funny, whenever I do policy, um, in libertarian policy, it's always the same concept. And again, it goes back to marketing. I know I keep using my business um, background in this. When you want the the population, in this case, the market to accept uh, an idea, it has to be radical enough to be interesting, but familiar enough that they'll accept it. If it's just radical, the, the population goes, no thanks. And if it's just familiar, they go, we already have that. So it doesn't win. You've got to try to find that perfect balance. And most products fail to find that, but some do. And those that explode are, do very well. I think probably the best example of that in marketing is probably Apple, right? Apple is different, but similar enough for people to go, you know what? I, I want that product. So I think they're probably the most successful recently, if you look at that. So what do I always do? I try to find something that's that's both familiar and radical. And that was the idea of regulate like onions, right? Regulation. Oh, people get that. That feels safe and good. Onions. Oh, that's kind of weird. You make cannabis onions? Huh. And it stuck. So I went with the idea of immigration. I went with Ellis Island, which people get what that is. It's familiar enough. Oh, I remember Ellis Island. I know about that. Yes, familiar. But then it's just two on the southern border. Oh, we ever had that before. So it's radical enough. Also familiar enough for people to remember and think about it and to accept it. So when it comes to this idea, you have, you build two Ellis Islands on the southern border. Maybe one in California, maybe one in Texas, or whatever the right places where most people would come will make the most sense. And the most important part about this is it's not built by the government. They're built by two private companies. And the rule here is they must be two separately owned companies so they can compete against each other. So that when people go there, the ones who treat people the best are where the people go. So if you treat people poorly, people won't go there. You'll lose money. I'll explain that in a second. But that's the whole goal. It has to be two separate, two separate companies who compete against each other. They, they do two separate Ellis Islands. What happens? You want to come to our country and you want to be uh, documented? You want to be legal? No worries. Go to the Ellis Island. You go to the Ellis Island. They check you out. Are you a terrorist? Are you, do you have some horrible disease? Insert thing here. Right? You're good. You immediately get and I'll, use, I'll steal from you, Judge, orange card. You get an orange card, which is – that's your work visa, and that's what you get. You get a two-year work visa. Off you go. Go ahead. Do it. Get, go where you want. Go, go and, uh, and, and, and go work. No worries. Here are the rules you want to keep. Now, DACA had a lot of problems, particularly because it was an executive order, but there were certain parts of DACA that were very good. And the two parts I want us to keep, part number one, you have to check in every two years. So you go off and you work whatever, in New York City, you go work in Chicago, wherever you go to work. you got to check in every two years. Okay, checked in. Did you get any type of, uh, of, of public assistance? You did, you're gone. Because second part of that is, from DACA, no public assistance. So if you, are, uh, if you have an orange card, you may work, pay your taxes, have the same you know, uh, criminal justice rights anybody else would have, same rights as uh, any other person in our country. However, you may not get any public assistance, uh, assistance. If you do, you're gone. If you don't check in, we come after you, you're gone. Do that and you're good. Every two years you check in. As long as you're checking in, you're paying your taxes, life is good. No worries. What's happening? Since they can't get public assistance, they're basically paying us to work here. They're paying taxes and not getting public assistance. I'm okay with that. Some people want to just work here and go home, no worries, they can cross the border whenever they want because they're legal, go home, visit their families, whatever they want, awesome. Some want a green card, awesome, we can have a way to get to a green card, whatever that is. Maybe every two years they take a test, or every 10 years they have to pass a test, or whatever the case may be, we can find ways of making that work. Maybe they want to become citizens, awesome, we can find a way to make that happen also. Is that 10 years, 20 years, whatever, That system is a system separate from the government system. So therefore, those people who are in line right now don't get affected. If you went through the normal way of of becoming American, not affected, no one skips the line, all good. uh, It's a separate system. But an even better part, what happens if those people who are in the current government system say, this orange card system is actually better? Well, they can go too. Anyone can go to the Ellis Island. You don't have to be crossing a border. You can be here legally in our country now and say, you know what? I'm going to go that route. It's actually faster. So you can go there, get your, um, get your orange card, and forget about the cards you got and everything else you have with the government. Do the orange card. The government re- responds it or respects it, and boom, go through that system if you want to. Taking more of a burden off our current government system. Lowering spending, all good. Lowering taxes, all good. But I'm still not done. There are anywhere between 10, 11 million undocumented workers in New York State now, maybe 12 million. Who knows? It's a lot. We physically don't have the resources, time, money, and energy to go get them or find them or whatever. We can't do it. So what can we do instead? They can just go to the Ellis Island too. If you're currently working someplace and you're undocumented, go to the Ellis Island. Go there, get your papers, and go back and work. Now, will those 11 million people do it? Of course not. Some will, though, because some always do. they are always early adopters. And let's say half a million of the 12 million do it. They go, get their orange card, and go back. When they go back to their communities, all of a sudden what happens? They say, oh, I'm not afraid anymore. Why? Because I pay my taxes. I'm okay. If, my, if, if, if I get harassed by my boss, I can call the government and say, stop harassing me. I can sue them if I want to, if they screw me over. Uh, human trafficking, that stuff goes away. I'm not scared of, of Juan, the bad guy Juan anymore, because I can call the cops on him. All those things begin to change. And then other people look at that and go, huh, they didn't deport you. I'm going to. And before you know it, over the course of years, those 11 or 12 million people will start going to the Ellis Island, start paying their taxes. They won't be getting public assistance, and they'll be legal. They'll be documented. But there are bad people. Of those 12 million, there are some, as the president would say, bad hombres. They absolutely exist. But right now, we can't get them either. Because when law enforcement goes into these immigrant enclaves and says, hey, where's bad bad guy Juan, everyone runs away because they're going to get deported. But now they're legal. So now when they go there and they say, where's bad guy Juan? She goes, right there. Go get him. Boom. Law enforcement can get the bad guys. Because as time goes on, the only people who won't be documented will be the bad guys. So they, it won't, there won't be a great place for them to be here. So some of them will literally just pack up and leave because it doesn't work for them anymore. They can't exploit the, the, the undocumented workers anymore. Their business model, their, their, their black market business model won't work anymore. And when it doesn't work, some of them will simply pack up and leave. Others we will physically go get. But it will make everybody safer. Everybody's safer. It, it all works. But how do you pay for it? Here's how you pay for it. Again, you have individual companies owning those two Ellis Islands. When they run those two Ellis Islands, how do they get paid? Very simple. You follow, the, you follow the recruitment model. Right now, recruiting companies get paid when they place people. That's how they get paid. There are literally thousands of farmers, uh, hotels, uh, restaurants who are putting thousands and thousands of dollars into the black market to get workers because they need them. Well, stop putting that money in the black market. Instead, put that money to the Ellis Islands, and the Ellis Islands will send you workers. Like, there's no tomorrow. You need workers? I got you. Send them. Boom, boom, boom. Send the workers. They get paid by the companies who get the workers. That's how they get paid. And recruiting companies have been making money for decades doing this. So, so is Ellis Island. But not just that. What if they want to start charging for the orange cards? They want to start charging for the test to, become, to get green cards, or charging for the test to become citizens. Another way of them raising money. Absolutely, they can raise money. Now they also compete against each other. So if you start treating people poorly, they won't go to that island; they'll go to the other one. So they have to treat people better. Also, well, why do we need more of them? Maybe, maybe put one on the Canadian border too. Doesn't matter. We can control our borders and have vibrant immigration and have less strain on the government um, in general. Lower spending, not raise taxes, and solve all these problems.
2: Well, you could put one in St Louis also for the people that are already here uh, Absolutely. It would be basically just a competitive system okay. so you could you could have a branch branch office there you know this is this is exciting larry you're you're combining so many things that will actually work. And we'll be able to use our resources so much better. Yes. Okay. The ICE people, and we do need people to to get, as you call it, bad hombres out. Uh, but they can at least, instead of trying to to harass families who are trying to work and and do it a good job, you're actually going to send out the people that are that are not there. So so good for you. Uh, how do you? We only have a few minutes left, Larry, and, and you're just you're so articulate. Please give us some help. Uh, you you are online. You have your own website. You have your own podcast. Do a little self promotion here because you deserve it. Head,
3: head over to sharpway.com. Head over to the Sharp Way um, Facebook page, the Sharp Way Twitter, the Sharp Way YouTube. I am everywhere. Sharp Way Instagram. Head on out there. I am on. I, I provide at least five. To seven hours of live content every single week. Lots of it. Get on, watch, and it's live. So if you want to comment, I'll talk to you uh, one-on-one. I have guests. I talk about the news. I do an AMA every Monday. and We chat about issues and concerns. It's good live content. Please come. If you want to know about my policies, LarrySharp.com. You can go to my Facebook page, Larry Sharp, comma libertarian. All good stuff. I'm happy to have you on board. If you're libertarian, awesome. And if you're not, that's fine, too. I'm happy to speak to everybody of every stripe, political or otherwise. And, in fact, the funny part is most of the people who are watching, only about half, maybe, are libertarian. The rest, are Democrat or Republican. And very often, I will bring Democrats, Republicans on my show.
2: Well, well, actually, I I disagree with that comment. Lots of Republicans and Democrats are libertarians. They just don't know it, that there are so many people that, that, oh, that's me, too, that sort of thing. So it's just it's a question of getting the marketing out there so that people realize that we also have operations. Uh, You also have Neo Sage Group Incorporated. Uh, Tell us a little more about that. And maybe you have some potential clients out there. Uh, Do a little salesmanship yourself
3: absolutely if, what i my specialty is always the same emotional communication that is effective that's what i talk about constantly most of the people i work with are either in tech finance or law because those are the people who tend to be very concerned about accurate communication and that's wonderful when you are a junior but when you become senior it can your communication cannot just be judged on its accuracy it must also be judged upon its effectiveness did you get what you wanted and that's a critical aspect of shifting from a doer to a leader. And I spend time doing that. You go to neo sage dot com. There are online classes. You can reach out to me for training and also for coaching.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. This is a really, he's lived up to expectation. He has met it and surpassed it. I always take notes when I'm listening to Larry Sharp, a good, solid man with great experience, uh, former Marine as well. And uh, just, you can't go wrong by by sitting at the feet of Larry Sharp, and he will help help, help us all. He's a libertarian to some degree. Uh, I had a modest amount to do with it, and I, that makes me very proud. But he was linking his name to mine when we were running for president and vice president libertarian. And Larry, thank you for being with us. Thank you for who you are, and thank you for what you're doing. So folks, there thank you, you have it. Yet my my pleasure my friend so there you have it and in many ways of course life is complicated but it can d- distill down to you know the whole idea of marketing Realize that, and then operations, keeping them separate, but they're both necessary to get those words out, etc. So this is this is what we do on All Rise. We give you ideas. My goodness sakes, what do you think about two Ellis Islands? I mean, wouldn't that be a wonderful system? So, to say it be better, what we have today is kind of damning with faint praise. It would really work from my standpoint. Let's implement things like that. Follow Milton Friedman's idea that hey, we should judge our programs by their their success, not their good intentions. So tune in again next week. We will continue to present interesting live people here to to give you real solutions, as well as <laughs> real radicals as well and activists. We all have it here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. So tune in again. Thanks for being with us. Come back on demand anytime. I'm gonna listen to this one once more at least. So as we say, when we leave you, I say and as well and mean it, life is good, because it is. Thanks. See you soon. Be well.
1: Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the libertarian way with retired judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen
0: my heart that help us stand tall.